Hi, this is Dr. Karen Horton from Johns Hopkins. This is going to be part two of the acute abdomen GU applications. And in this section, we're going to discuss stone disease. 1.2 million Americans are affected annually, and it's really estimated that up to 14% of men or 6% of women will develop kidney stone disease in their lifetime. Also, it's very common to have recurrent stone disease. So it's estimated stone recurrence 50% within 5 to 10 years and 75% within 20 years. There's definitely an increasing prevalence, and it's a huge health care cost. You can see in 1993 it was $1.8 billion. By the year 2000, it was $5.3 billion. The clinical presentation is pretty straightforward. Patients usually will present with pain and hematuria, so that's what they'd be seeing in the emergency room. The site of the obstruction correlates a little bit with the site of the pain. So, for example, patients often present with flank pain when the stone's in the upper ureter, if mid-abdominal pain if it's in the mid-ureter, groin or testicular pain if it's in the lower ureter, and often bladder symptoms if it's at the UVJ. There's been growing utilization of imaging for this diagnosis, for treatment planning, as well as for follow-up. And, you know, these days we basically use CT, but for a long time we're using ultrasound, plain films, and IVP, basically to confirm the suspected diagnosis, to detect complications, to plan the management, and for follow-up. If we just take a look back in time, plain films have been used since 1896. And if you remember, the x-rays were discovered in 1895. So from the very beginning, we've used plain films to diagnose stone disease. Early studies published sensitivities up to 90%, but of course they didn't realize everything they weren't seeing on plain film. Studies that compare plain films with CT show that the plain film sensitivity is really only around 60%. IVPs were used since the 1920s and really remained the primary imaging modality for stone disease until the late 1990s. And it was really in the early 1990s that CT became the gold standard for evaluating stone disease at most centers. The emergence of multi-detector CT in the late 1990s, followed by dual energy techniques like we have today, really further advanced the scope of CT for this indication. So how good is CT? It's excellent. Very, very high positive and negative predictive value, very high sensitivity, especially for stones with calcium, and high specificity as well. So it's as good as it gets. Advantages of doing CT, it's fast. only takes a few seconds to scan the abdomen and pelvis. You don't need IV contrast. There's a high sensitivity for almost all stones. So it's much more sensitive than plain film for detecting cysteine stones, for example, or xanthine stones, which don't have a lot of um, density, so they're radiolucent on plain films, but still radiopaque on CT. Also, CT has the advantage of being able to detect other pathology. So a patient with suspected stone disease, if they don't have a stone, you have a chance on CT to detect the cause of their symptoms. Unenhanced CT for suspected stone disease accounts for 22% of all CT examinations performed for abdominal pain in the emergency room, and this was published in 2003. So from the very beginning, this is a very, very common indication. Identification of stones at imaging has also been found to alter management up to 60% of patients having acute renal colic because it's very important compared to just the clinical or laboratory evaluation, it adds further information and will alter the management of the patient. So it's a very cost-effective study to use in the ER. This is a study from about 10 years ago, and again, it shows that once we started to use CT for this indication, it really increased the ED physician's confidence in the diagnosis and management and 
change the treatment plan. So this is why it's cost effective. You can really triage the patient appropriately, discharge them or admit them, consult with urology if needed. So what are the CT findings? First of all, you're going to be looking to identify the stone itself, and then secondary findings related to obstruction, such as hydroureter, hydronephrosis, perinephric stranding, perinephric fluid, you might have an enlarged edematous kidney, and at least one ancillary finding is seen in 95, um, or sorry, above 90% of patients with acute renal colic. Again, very high positive predictive value and negative predictive value for the secondary findings as well, such as hydroureter, perinephric stranding. If you have both, then it's a very good indicator that you have obstructing stone disease. On the flip side, if you don't have a hydroureter or perinephric stranding, then the negative predictive value is also pretty high. Now let's talk about the stones themselves. Almost all stones are visible on non-contrast CT. Okay, even stones such as uric acid, Cysteine and xanthine stones, which are radiolucent on plain film, still have Hounsfield units greater than 200, and so you'll be able to see them as white or radio-opaque on CT. The only stones that are difficult to visualize on non-contrast CT are the pure matrix stones, which are very uncommon, and pure indinavir stones, and these are stones that form in patients on certain medicines that treat HIV. They really have soft tissue attenuation. This is an image from the literature of an indinavir stone. You can see you have the secondary findings of hydronephrosis and hydroureter, but you don't actually see the stone until you give contrast and the stone appears radiolucent. These are very uncommon, but if you're in the right clinical situation that you're suspecting one of these, then IV contrast would be important to be able to see the radiolucent stone. The CT technique varies in the literature. Most people are using between 1 and 3 millimeter collimation. You need thin slices because you're looking for small stones. It would be difficult to find a three millimeter stone if you're using three or five millimeter collimation. Usually we use 100 to 120 kVp or automated tube current modulation so you can decrease the radiation dose. No IV contrast or oral contrast is needed. You want to scan in through the entire kidneys all the way to the base of the bladder and then having coronal and sagittal reformations are extremely helpful. Uh, this has been shown in the literature over and over that high-resolution coronal reformatted in images generated just automatically from the isotropic data set really allow more rapid and more accurate detection of urinary stones than do axial images alone. So it's definitely helpful to have the coronals available. Here's an example of an obstruction on the right. You can see perinephric stranding, hydronephrosis. You can see the dilated calyces. You can see the dilated ureter. And there you can see an obstructing stone at the right ureteral vesicle junction. The stones are pretty straightforward. You can see that at calculi in this study, you can see that there's a small radiopaque stone in the proximal right ureter. Here's another patient with significant right hydronephrosis. You can see a dilated renal pelvis, and there you can see the obstructing stone. Here's volume rendering. We're looking at the left kidney. You can see a little bit of hydronephrosis, prominent ureter, and there you can see the stone. And on the coronal reformations, you can see the obstructing stone in the left mid-ureter. This one perhaps is a little bit more subtle, but there's a little stranding around the right kidney, the right ureter is a little dilated as we're following it down. It's a little prominent and you can see a very subtle stone at the right ureteral vesicle junction. If you, these are I think a three millimeter slices. If you went back and scanned even thinner, uh, I'm sorry, reconstructed thinner slices, you would see that it looks a little brighter, but you can still detect it on that. 
Sometimes you can see stone disease on a contrast-enhanced scan, as in this case, there's stones in the right kidney. There's stranding, a little bit of stranding in the left kidney as well. Here's a patient where you see um, bilateral enhanced kidneys with a stone in the lower pole of the right kidney. Here's another study done for a evaluation of abdominal pain with IV contrast. You can see a big stone there in the right renal pelvis. Another patient with a subtle stone in the distal right ureter. You can see on the left-sided image, you have a dilated ureter, and then you see the obstructing stone. Of course, in real life, this is easier because you're going to scroll through the images. And here you can see, again, right hydronephrosis and hydroureter. This was a patient who also received a contrast-enhanced scan. You can see there's a little decreased function of the right kidney. And then you can see that tiny obstructing stone at the right ureteral vesicle junction. It becomes a little trickier to diagnose stones in the distal ureter if you give IV contrast. This was a patient that had left hydronephrosis and hydroureter and had a lot of fluid around the left kidney. There was a high-grade obstruction at the left ureteral vesicle junction. You could see the stone there. This patient had continued severe pain, and we repeated the study with IV contrast. And you can see that all that perinephric fluid is actually extravasated contrast. So this patient had a calocele rupture from a high-grade obstruction. The most important factors influencing the management decision and whether or not you need urologic intervention is where the stone is, so we'll discuss that. The size of the stone is also important. The composition of the stone is critical and also patient symptoms. The urologists rely heavily on our measurements of the stones. So stones measuring less than 4 millimeters in the upper ureter, most of them will pass easily. In the 5 to 7 millimeter range, about half of them will pass. If it's above 8 millimeters, probably won't pass on its own. In the lower ureter, again, less than 5 millimeters, uh, most of them will pass. Once you get above 7 or 8 millimeters, it's unlikely that it will pass on its own. It's important to quantify the stone burden. Some people will look at this with volumetric techniques, so there's software available to look at the volume of the stone instead of just giving a single measurement. Stone composition we'll discuss. You can determine that based on the attenuation values. And then there's also some research being done in stone fragility. And so basically looking at the stone and seeing whether or not it looks really hard and would be difficult to break up or whether it looks heterogeneous, suggesting maybe it's a little softer. So accurate measurement of the stone helps determine whether the patient is a candidate for medical expulsive therapy or urologic intervention, as well as the type of intervention, because you have lithotripsy, ureteroscopy with lithotripsy, or percutaneous nephrolithotomy. The linear measurements are historically used, and typically people would measure these on the soft tissue windows. But recent evidence suggests that the bone windows with magnification are more accurate. And here's just an example of a soft tissue window where I'm measuring a stone. It measures, I think, 4.1 millimeters. But if you change to bone windows, you can see it's less than 3 millimeters. So it probably is more accurate to zoom and magnify the stone up and measure it on bone windows, since the size of the stone is critical for predicting the outcome of the patient. You can determine stone volume for a regularly shaped stone, such as a staghorn calculus, and there's software that will be able to do there, this, and there's some evidence showing that a stone burden greater than 700 millimeters cubed would be a significant predictor of failure at lithotripsy. And this is from a radiology article, which is very interesting, describing the technique and be able to make a 3D volumetric image of the stone and determine a more accurate stone volume rather than just a linear measurement. It's important to 
consider the stone composition. Most stones are calcium-based stones, like calcium oxalate monohydrate or calcium oxalate dihydrate, calcium phosphate. These are very easily detected because of the high calcium, so they have high Hounsfield unit measurements. There's also struvite stones, those are your magnesium ammonium phosphate, uric acid stones, which occur in acidic urine. These are important to detect because you can dissolve them by simply making the urine alkaline, and that will dissolve it. And then there are other stones, which we'll discuss cysteine, xanthine, protein matrix, and drug-induced stones. Those ones we discussed are radiolucent. This is a very nice chart talking about the composition of all the different stones, the frequency, and whether they're radiopaque or radiolucent. The calcium stones tend to have a very high Hounsfield unit, over 1,000 most of the time. Uric acid stones, you can see, are lower, 200 to 450. Struvite stones are also pretty dense, 600 to 900 range. And cysteine stones are also pretty dense. Stone composition is very important because uric acid stones will be treated by making the urine alkaline as the first line of treatment with surgery being reserved for only those who don't respond to the medical therapy. Stones of certain compositions such as cysteine as well as the calcium-based stones of certain attenuation are extremely difficult to fragment with lithotripsy, so it's nice to be able to predict the composition of the stones. In vivo, determination of the stone composition using attenuation values is more challenging because many of the stones have mixed composition, so it's very difficult to determine exactly the stone composition. So really using the CT attenuation values is most helpful in identifying the uric acid stones. Dual energy can be helpful for this indication. It's really a promising tool to determine stone composition where concurrent scanning at 80 and 140 kVp and the resulting data can be exploited to accentuate difference in tissue characterization. You can color code it. The voxels with calcium are usually color coded blue and those with uric acid, so the lower attenuation values are color coded red. And so you can really distinguish pure uric acid from calcium stones and also pure uric acid stones from mixed uric acid and calcium stones. can also distinguish uric acid stones from cysteine stones. So here's an example, and you can see that the aorta and the bones are blue, but also the stone in the left kidney is blue. So that's a calcium-based stone. Here's another example on the left of a calcium-based stone. And here's an example of a uric acid stone, so that it looks red. And this is all color-coded in the software. Here's a chart. So knowing the stone composition and the Hounsfield units at dual source CT is important along the pathway. So if you identify uric acid, acid stones, they're going to try to resolve them. If not, they go to other therapies. If it's cysteine, they're going to try ure, uh, ureteroscopy or percutaneous nephrolithotomy, not lithotripsy because it doesn't work well with cysteine stones. And then with the non-uric acid stones, based on the Hounsfield units less or higher than 1,000, they'll determine whether they should go to ureteroscopy and lithotripsy or ureteroscopy or possibly percutaneous nephrolithotomy. There's some new research being done on stone fragility. That's looking at the internal architecture of the stone. If it's homogeneous, it's more rigid and harder to break up. If it's heterogeneous, it's more fragile and probably requires less uh, comminution with the stone, uh, the sound wave lithotripsy. So here you can see there's a big stone in the right renal pelvis. And when you look at a blown up image of that, and this is from a radiographics article, you can see that it's heterogeneous. So this is predicting that this will do well at lithotripsy. The stone location also will change the treatment. So for instance, 
um, the symptoms and the stone location are very important. So if it's less than a centimeter, no symptoms, they'll observe it. And you can see the larger it gets, the more aggressive they are with the treatment plan. Also, again, this is in the ureter. Based on the stone size and the symptoms, they'll go down a different pathway. So it's very, very important to be able to determine the size of the stone, where it is, and give them a sense of whether or not it's going to pass on its own. There are some pitfalls, which we'll discuss in the last couple minutes. The gonadal vein, for example, early on, this gave people a lot of trouble trying to distinguish the ureter from the gonadal vein. So you simply have to know your anatomy. It's pretty straightforward. Flevoliths or vascular calcifications can be difficult by using your MPRs, 3D, or sometimes even if you have to give IV contrast, you can distinguish uh, vascular calcification from a ureteral calcification. And then sometimes bladder versus UVJ stones on a supine image may be difficult to determine, and you simply have to flip the patient. Here's just a little review of anatomy. The gonadal vein as it passes, you can see versus the ureter. Here's an example where the patient had a right UVJ stone, or we didn't know whether it had passed yet or not. So we flipped the patient prone, and you can see it's in the same location. So this is lodged at the ureteral vesicle junction. It hasn't yet passed into the bladder. What are some of the limitations of using CT for this indication? Very thin patients. It can be a challenge. There's no fat. It can be difficult to confidently identify the ureter if it's not dilated. Sometimes you'll see secondary findings such as hydroureter, perinephric stranding. The stone's already passed already. Small, non-obstructing calculus can mimic a flebolith, and we discussed that. And tiny stones may be difficult if you're using thick slices. You want thin slices and the lowest KVP possible. Here was a bit of a problem case on the left image. You can see, I thought that was a stone at the ureteral vesicle junction, but it could have been a flebolith. The left ureter was minimally dilated. We couldn't figure it out, so we gave IV contrast. On the right image, you can see that contrast is filling the left ureter. And then on the reconstructions, and this is a volume rendering image, you can see the ureter separate from that calcification. So that was just a flebolith. Okay, so that's it for our discussion on stone disease. Next time we'll do part three, which is some miscellaneous GU applications. Thank you.